0: Can we cut ourselves off from the people and still remain scientists? The battle to measure the heavens is won by doubt. By credulity, the Roman housewives' battle for milk will be lost again and again. Science, T. is involved in both struggles. What are you scientists working for? So the sole aim of science to my mind is to lighten the toil of the human existence. If you give way to coercion, your progress must be a progress away from humanity. A gulf between you and Humanity might grow so wide that the response to your exaltation at some new achievement could be a universal howl of horror. As a scientist, I had a unique opportunity. In my day, astronomy emerged into the marketplace. That particular time, if one man had put up a fight, it might have had vast repercussions. I've come to the conclusion, Sati, that I was never in real danger. For a time, I was as strong as the authorities and I surrendered my knowledge to the powers that be to use it, not use it, abuse it, just as they saw fit.
1: Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. We are online at whatsleftpodcast.com. You can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, share your favorite episode, or jot down our information wherever you found this episode. Uh, my name is Andy Libson. I'm a socialist and teacher here in Oakland. We're joined by Kenny Zapeda, who's also a socialist. And as you can see, we have, well, Eduardo's not here today. Um. And uh, we have two guests uh, I wanna introduce. One is George Borg, visiting assistant professor of philosophy at UPenn. And the other is Vincent Kelly, PhD candidate in musicology at UPenn. Um, So first off, welcome George and welcome Vincent. Thanks for having me on. Um, So let me explain to our guests and our audience what we're doing today. Um, First off, uh, George reached out to me, I think, you know about a month or two ago, having I think you'd seen a what's left episode. What was the what's what's left episode about? do you remember? Uh,
2: yes, it was about the um it was a discussion of an article on the lockdown left uh, uh, by Chris Parenti. So this is an uh, an episode from a while ago, I think maybe beginning of early twenty twenty two if memory serves. It's what it sort of sounded like uh where um uh Parenti is criticizing the you know the broad most of the left uh including the radical left for supporting um the covid regime narrative uh, and I, I stumbled onto it kind of by accident um uh, and i thought your the whole line of questioning was pretty much uh consonant with mine um and so uh then i followed the links to in in the, uh, podcast, uh, notes there, um, to, uh, and, uh, I, <clears throat> so the podcast is connected with this group called the workers and, uh, and students for choice, uh, sort of left, uh, medical freedom group. And I just signed up, you know, put myself on the mailing list for that. And then and Andy, uh, reached out to me
1: and, um, and uh, that's how we got the ball rolling. Yep. Yeah. And and I think you were kind of glad to find other, not just explicit leftists, but even Marxists who might have taken a critical view of what's going on and tried to fight what was going on about this. And I remember you saying that. And so, you know, both myself and George are Marxists. And that, and that was great to meet a person who also was a Marxist, who wasn't crazy and thinking that the state should be, you know, supported in mandating things and just wasn't supporting big pharma in injecting people with things. Um, so that was nice. Um, yeah, I, I, I would say I was actually, yeah, I was, uh, excited, right. Because,
2: uh, until then I had, I had been in a socialist organization, um, which had been, you know, DSA and which had been completely on board with the COVID regime, um, or at least quietistic about it. Um, uh, and, I knew a very few, uh, explicit Marxists who, um, were challenging the narrative in any deep way. Uh, and so I, uh, and not none in this country.
1: Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I was uh, excited to find out about you guys. Um, yeah. And, and you had mentioned this, that yourself and Vincent had tried to do some organizing against mandates, which we'll talk about later a few years back. Um, and, and now I've published a recent article opposing any new imposition of mandates and things like that, as well as the past ones. Um, but I think the, the interesting discussion, the, the, the conversation we had, went just deeper than Marxism. It got into science, and you, uh, George, have a, a background in the philosophy and history of science, um, and you have had deeper questions about what's going on with science, just like as has happened here. And I was like, okay, let's have that discussion here. And and you said your your friend. Vincent here might also be interested in joining us in that discussion would be helpful. Um, so um, maybe what I'll do now, and that so this folks is what the discussion is going to be about. It's going to be about science and truth and trying to figure out what the hell's going on in the world, um, not just politically, but in a, in an area that many of us thought was almost free of politics um, and, and somehow or or hadn't had was moving closer to the truth because we knew politics were lies. I think several of us would agree with that. But this over here was source and truth, and I think that balloon has been punctured for all of us, and so we're we're trying to take it from there. Um, Vincent, maybe introduce yourself and say anything you want to, and I, George as well, about um yourself or what we what you hope to discuss today.
3: Sure, yeah, thank you for having us on, both of us, and you know I'm really glad to have found out about your your podcast and work through George, um, because he stumbled upon it, then I was able to benefit secondhand from that as well. Um, So yeah, I mean, I can get into this a little bit more later. But essentially, some of that background that you gave as far as how our world has really been shaken up over the last three years has really made me um, reflect on a lot of the place of science and technology especially on the left is somebody who does have a background on the left and maybe is less of a, a card-carrying leftist than some these days just because of my own personal political trajectory um, but I think a lot of the analysis coming out of Marxism um, and the left movement in general, you know, it was just very confusing to me how a lot of people were responding to the pandemic. Um, And I think I've just gotten more disillusioned with a lot of the responses the more that we've actually learned about the motives behind Mm -hmm. them and um, things that really only time can tell. So, you know, I'm hoping we can get into some of that today. And, And I will say I'm far less qualified to to speak on some of these issues of of philosophy and history of science uh, compared to somebody like George. But you know, I, I my own background is more in um, actually religious studies and music studies and things like that. But I'm, I'm kind of a wannabe philosopher of sorts, so I appreciate the opportunity to intervene in some of these uh, discussions in the ways that I can.
2: Well, science is the new religion, Vincent. So <laughs> religious
1: studies might come in useful. yeah and in terms of i think kenny would agree with this but in terms of qualified honestly i think this notion of i think this whole notion of qualifications is is wrong and it's been used to keep people silent and actually one of the first things we have to open up is that the people most qualified to speak on this are the people affected by these things and i think george you sent me a uh, a quote from Galileo, that movie Galileo, that I think I will use to open this discussion, where, you know, this is supposed to be for us. So, and not just something with this handed down, but is literally ours. So, I think we are, everyone is qualified to speak on these issues. Um, unfortunately, except many of the experts who have a stake in something else other than finding the truth. So, I think that's what I think that framework I've, I've I'm firmed up more in my head um then than when I first started, when we first started, what's that?
2: Yeah, I think you know, part of the appeal of science, um, so in that Galileo quote from, from that movie, right uh, the he, he links the the battle the struggle for scientific truth against um the church in, in his time, right? and the and the uh, uh, geocentric view of the of the universe they were uh, uh, supporting with the class struggle, right? And he talks about how, the, the struggle of the peasants against the landlords right in in uh, early modern Italy uh is in or you know organically connected with the struggle of the scientists for uh for truth right uh, in particular in his case because the uh geocentric worldview was being used to uh, as part of the ideology for keeping the peasants down and you know extracting circles that they were
4: from them yeah um and Kenny, you were going to say something? I just wanted to, you know, comment on that, the whole credentials and things. Uh, I've been very vocal on the show about my disdain for, or tr- I, I get triggered by the, the <laughs> word expert now. Because, yeah. you know, I've seen it use on, on war, you know, that, that that was always obvious, right? Like some general goes on, on national TV to explain, you know, weapons of mass destruction, you know, and, and the need to go and invade a country. And I don't, and I see that same thing, right? With with like the scientists that you know objectively uh, push a lot of this pseudoscience, right? Like uh, that we now understand um, and have evidence for that it was a complete lie, you know. In, in some, in, when it comes to the pandemic, right, and all these uh, mandates and restrictions, and so just wanted to add that that I, I in 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 the process of going through. Uh, the pandemic and resisting a lot of the mandates, um, I learned and I reaffirm the notion that I would rather listen to my mother than a lot of college-educated people. Because, you know, we've talked about education because it, it, what is the role of education in society and especially in the context of capitalism and in these institutions. So, of institutionalizing people. and so again, just wanted to drop that in that you know we think everyone has something to say uh, and often I find especially in this journey that the people that are has have the less documented credentials often were closer to the truth than than you know at least in, in my experience being in San Francisco where everyone was vicious against the unvaccinated And you know San Francisco being one of the most educated, you know Regions in the world, quote unquote. I mean, I think part of the appeal of science for the
2: ruling class is precisely that it's opaque. Um, to right, and so every day the problems of everyday life can sort of get recoded in in these terms that only you know the experts uh, can understand, right? And then that gives the experts and the people they work for a tremendous amount of power over the working class. Um, uh, and we see like the failure, you know, as you were like, you know, you know, from experience that, you know, like the masking and all, all that stuff is a joke, right? It doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, it's just something that's being imposed on you by this, uh, this, you know, the supposed experts and really the people that they're working for.
4: Yeah. yeah and cool. then, oh, go ahead, Ken. And then, you know, funny you mentioned this obscure terminology and language, right? And that's exactly what the church did, you know, with using Latin in many countries, right? Where only the priests could access the scripture and all this stuff. And so, yes, you know, it just brings back this notion that science or modern Western science is uh, the new
1: religion of, of many. And I'll say, you in know, a, in a reading that we never actually brought to what's left, but I think we did, Rosa Luxemburg was writing about economics. She made the same claim about economics, that it it obscures much more. In fact, it seems to be developed to obscure the way the economy runs rather than reveal it. So um, I think there's a lot of that. Um, So Vincent, um, how would you describe where you were and where you are and how you got there with regards to science and your thoughts about it?
3: Well, I think probably the best thing to do is actually go pretty far back in my personal history before just the beginning of the pandemic or things like that. Because I do think the overarching, you know, uh, arc of someone's biography does matter in a lot of ways for where people ended up um, going into this and where they ended up, you know, right now. So, um, you know, one interesting thing we were talking a little bit about, before the the podcast was the relationship between science and education. And for me, you know, I had somewhat of an unconventional educational background. I was mostly homeschooled, um, but I went to public school for some classes. I didn't get a high school diploma. Um I took the G D and then went to college with that. Um but it, it was an interesting um experience for me and you know there's always the temptation of of telling you know as philosophers like to call it just so stories about your past but um you know i I do feel like i had some window into the function of schooling in society just not being totally a part of it but also partaking in it to some degree Mm -hmm. um and that definitely made me more skeptical of a lot of the the dogmas that were just being handed down, especially in things, you know, like this is what science says or something like that, or or how you learn this assemblage of facts that's just um, you know, taken as as self-justifying. Um and fast forwarding from that a little bit, you know, I I'm from the Pacific Northwest um in Oregon and, you know, there The left out there, um, you know, I I don't know if you guys have discussed some of the regional differences, but, you know, there's definitely um, more of the sort of radical environmental side of things out there, um, just much more present than some of the more organized socialist or communist parties or, you know, even larger scale labor movement or things like that. Um, and, and some of my early politicization was was in the radical environmental movement. Um, and I think a lot of that imbued me with just an intuition um to be somewhat skeptical about a lot of scientific claims that were being made as this only way that one could know about the world. And I and I think hopefully we can get into this issue of knowing versus manipulating the world, which I think is an important one. Um, But, you know, this idea that I think I got pretty early on uh, that, you know, manipulation might not be the best direction to go and that where is really the dividing line between knowing the truth about a phenomenon and just being able to practically manipulate it for certain ends um, and then again the connection there between where does science uh, end and technology start I think they're often uh, partitioned a lot in in mainstream uh, discussions and debate about this as if they can be uh, tidally uh, put into their own corners but I, I think with the pandemic We definitely saw that, at least from my perspective, the two are very much intertwined and a lot of scientists who are ostensibly uh, engaged in the dispassionate search for truth are very much invested in a certain technocratic worldview um, and a certain way of manipulating the world towards certain ends that is not um, in the interests of workers or the people in general. So, you know, some of my background, I think, primed me to be a bit skeptical um, of a lot of uh, claims that ended up being made during the pandemic. However, I think, um, I mean, I'm really curious what you all have to say about this, but you know, I, um, after being involved in some of the radical environmental politics, I ended up getting pretty disillusioned with that. And a lot of it was actually coming to India, where I'm living right now for, for some of my research work. But the first time I came was, um, I guess it's been nine years now. But, um, you know, I realized living in a major city um, in South Asia, that, that a lot of the talking points if you will, that were being made by uh, radical environmentalists, though they might be correct analytically or factually, were not really gonna resonate with the broad masses of people on a global level. There just wasn't a sort of connection there. Um, and I think um, you know, thinking about implementing some of those ideas in a city like Delhi, for example, Felt very far flung to me, and and definitely drew me more towards labor politics as just the major thing that needed to be uh, focused on. So you know that that brought me more into, I guess, what you might consider the more traditional left, if you will, um, and you know was involved with some different uh, socialist and communist uh, organizing, and and without going into too much uh, detail with that. Um, I think it was very beneficial in many ways, but on the question of science, I think it actually set me back a bit leading up to the pandemic, because I think, um, you know, as as you've discussed, I I believe in some of the previous episodes of What's Left, a lot of the left coming from that perspective does just see science as somehow separate um, from all these other things that are politicized. Um, And that you can kind of just trust the experts and let them do their thing. And then we do our thing. And then, you know, after there is a major shift in political economy or social relations, there can somehow be this fluid uh, transformation of science into something that is actually for the people um, as some people will, will discuss it. Um, And so I think a lot of my intuitive skepticism around science as, as a, privileged method uh for knowing and changing the world uh was really sidelined to some degree when i was involved um uh with with some some of these leftist uh engagements um and and i think that that really did set me back at the beginning of the pandemic because i was still involved with one of these groups at that time um and i think you know some left groups opposed the COVID mandates to some degree, but, you know, I think, uh, you know, those that were a little bit more on an unconventional side of things, that I think the reasons also matter why one's opposing them too, right? So it shouldn't just be, and this is my critique of the right on a lot of this stuff as well, is, you know, it's not just, okay, you know, Joe Biden told me to wear a mask, so I'm not going to wear one. I mean, I don't think that's really the level of analysis that we need. Maybe it's a good intuition, right? And, and there can be some uh, fertile ground for discussion there. Um, but, you know, there there, there isn't always um, anywhere, there there usually isn't somewhere to go when people are just, um you know, being dissidents for dissidents' sake, um, and there's not really a broader analysis there. So, you know, I think for me, I was, um, you know, when I eventually came out against the mandates at Penn quite publicly, and this is how I ended up meeting George um, later on uh, with a petition against the, in this case, booster mandate. We, we can get into the the. Uh, decision-making allocations around the original vaccine mandates that were citywide and then the booster that the universities were implementing. But in any case, you know, just because of my position on that and previously uh, on some other issues that just, um, you know, didn't really jive with the the general leftist takes on things, I, I found myself more in dialogue with people on the right A lot of times, at least when I would write things, that would be more of the audience. Um, You know, even if you're not choosing that, I think a lot of us, uh, I see some of you nodding a lot about this, you know, have had that experience, uh, especially during the pandemic. So I I think we have seen a massive political realignment happen before our eyes. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I've been trying to do is just understand you know like you said at the beginning of the podcast what is actually going on right now because um, it does feel like history has moved very quickly um and and you know uh, even with certain recent events in in global affairs I think there's other realignments happening right now that have to be analyzed um but you know I, I can get more into uh, the the details of my approach to, to some of these mandates and the pandemic in general, but I, I think that's a long winded enough of an intro right now. So I can probably hand it over to, to George, unless you all have specific questions you want to ask.
1: Yeah. Um, I do want to say this um, because I think you use the word science is trying to reveal something versus science as about manipulation and that that, I realized that when you first said that word, I was like, "Yeah, science is manipulating people," but like, but science has also been about manipulating the environment, right? And so that term you're using is can be—I imagine you're using in both ways—the the the ability to manipulate our environment, which really is the raison d'être around science and things on about that. Particularly when Marxists talk about science, but it all, all clearly it has been much become much more about manipulating people than about manipulating the environment and and shaping the environment and is that the way you meant it at the time because it came up both
3: ways for me yeah i think both ways i i definitely when i was using it in terms of of some of the radical environmental analysis of this stuff i think that was a way in which um that that kind of movement has been a little bit ahead of a, a lot of the at least mainstream Marxists on this, and, and kind of thinking about both sides of of the coin on that kind of issue, both the environment and people. And I, I think, um, you know, during the pandemic response, we definitely witnessed the manipulation of people in a major way. That I think, um, you know, a lot of people. Uh, who had an analysis even of manipulation of the environment were unprepared to actually grapple with um, intellectually and politically. And, you know, I, I, I think it's been um, really important to to meet some people who have actually understood that that is a necessary task. You know, even if we don't have all the tools to do it, we at least um, need to move in that direction. I mean,
4: I think that... The whole environmentalist uh, side of this thing is also a place of many questions because there are narratives there too that have to be questioned. You know, that are taken as a given. You know, on the left, um, you know, just like uh, climate change and what does that mean? You know, and and uh, and so yeah, it's it's very interesting that that's where you had your start because I have very, um, we we even had an episode here of what we. Because uh, Planet of the Apes, sorry, Planet of the Humans, and uh, there was someone who was part of that uh, documentary who we interviewed and disowned us because we were uh, questioning the vaccine mandates, and so, you know, again, it shows the, the cognitive, you know, uh, what do you call that, sorry? Um, dissonance? Dissonance, yeah, um, you know, many, and it's not to shame people, right, it's, it's not to, like, to. to they, we are morally or more intellectually righteous, right? But it, it does show the ability of the systems that we're fighting in executing this uh, manipulation and, and division. Because now we, recently with Lipson, you know, people on the freedom movement, you know, that are not all leftists. There's a lot of people who lean right uh, who oppose the vaccine uh, mandates. Uh, but now we t- things about uh, Israel, for example. And and, and that scene, you know, after having in-depth discussions about the fourth industrial revolution, uh, digital, um, you know, currencies, uh, geofencing, and uh, a dystopian future where we are more precisely controlled, even after all those discussions, there's people who fail to see, you know, Palestinians as being in that world that we are trying to prevent, you know, from going to. and so. I think that to me is a big lesson here, that regardless of the topic uh, where we think there is an objective science, we have to question the mainstream narratives uh, because often all I think we find is that we ourselves are uh, control opposition, that we think we are radical, but we actually might be doing the beating and falling right into the hands of the people who rule this world.
3: Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Kenny, I, I think, you know, it's it's hard to ignore the current events in Palestine right now. Um, and I know that's not the topic for today, but I think, um, you know, I, I've been very troubled by a lot of the response to this um, from those who have opposed vaccine mandates more from the right. Um, and I, I think it in, in other related things, like you were talking about, um, where you feel like, okay, there's a certain amount of, unity forged here that we can move forward with. And then something happens objectively um, in the world. And there's a realization that maybe that unity wasn't as it appeared to be. Um, and I, I think that was definitely something I've been thinking about recently. And I, I, I think it's a major lesson for how you know real good faith Discussion and struggle over these issues can never end. I mean, we can't be complacent just because it feels emotionally good to be in unity with somebody because you're opposed to whatever the mainstream position is at any given time. Um, you know, I think it's very easy, you know, just to fall into that trap of being satisfied. Um, and I,
5: I think we we have to resist that at all costs.
1: Yeah. Um. George, what about you? How would you mark your transformation from where you were to where you are?
5: Yeah, so
2: um, in some ways, I was starting off from if Vincent's background made him prone to a bit more skepticism, mine, ironically enough, made me less prone, even though you would think it would have made me more prone, and the reason is... That I had I have a science background. So <clears throat> I uh I trained in chemistry. Uh, and I was, you know, basically in that field for a while. Um 12 years, like all together, all told. Um, and I besides academic chemistry, I also worked in the biotech industry. Um so, you know, in, in theory, like I should probably have been more suspicious. Um, but actually, I think it made me less because, um, in particular, after being in the pharmaceutical industry, you know, for I mean, it wasn't there for very long, but for a few years, right? And you just, you know, and, and already sort of veering towards Marxism at that time, you know. So uh, had you know some uh, insight into the profit motive and and the uh, uh, that the effects of that on on um, <clears throat> pharmaceutical uh, production right um but you know on the other hand there's a lot of ideological indoctrination in the sciences as well right i mean you are perhaps you're trained to be skeptical about like your precise field right um but then that's sort of combined with a sort of basically science worship right um and so there um plus also scientists have material interests right that um also uh, uh, give them, an, you know, disincline them from being skeptical of of certain kinds of science based narratives because that's where they get uh, their money from. I mean, like every, practically every organic chemistry article, at least when I was in the in the business, starts off with some justification in terms of pharmaceutical med- medicinal development. You know, um, so that we'll do they'll do some incredibly abstruse exercise in the lab that you know if it ever helps anybody is extremely you know um unlikely right but they'll still get justify it and get funding for it just by saying that well we can you know envision eventually developing uh you know anti-malarials or whatever you, uh cancer drugs or whatever through doing these studies right um so they have um their material they I mean any in the top chemistry departments, like all you know, any professor who's like sort of kind of moving up, right, and ambitious will start partnerships with uh, companies. You know, get on the uh, the uh, the board of directors of various startups. Um, will st- start their own companies, right? Through obviously partnerships with the venture capital. Um, they're also heavily heavily indebted to. State agencies like the uh, National Cancer Institute, the National Health Institute, uh, the National Science Foundation, and all of those agencies see it as their mission to promote American business, and in particular, you know, pharmaceuticals and the chemical industry and so on. Um, so both ideologically and materially, there's uh, a lot of pressure on scientists not to uh, be, be critical in a sort of holistic sense, right? Uh, in terms of, you know, what, what, what exactly is, who are they benefiting in the, you know, um, at the end of the day. Um, and then, you know, uh, the university being in the university milieu also for a long time, uh, because of various career, um, movements, um, does not help you would think it would help, but it actually did not in my case, because, uh you know the universities are very hierarchical Uh, a lot of people outside of academia don't i think appreciate exactly how hierarchical universities are um uh it's not there's a lot of this semblance of collegiality but in fact it's very much top-down people are used to taking orders uh there's uh, a cult of the expert right and uh, because these are all experts in training, right? Uh and even somebody in, you know, like doing abstruse stuff in philosophy, right? And metaphysics or something, or you know, medieval French literature or something, uh, musicology, perhaps, um, they're all uh you know, thought to think of themselves as to to worship expertise, right? And so you don't, as a as one expert, you don't question um uh, there's that this ideological disincentive to question the, the work of other experts. Um, and everybody's got their turf. Right. And, you know, you sort of, uh, uh, you know, you, um, uh, you, uh, you don't question what other people are doing. Right. Unless they're in your field. Um, and then finally, I mean, the left, uh, the response to the left was quite disappointing. I would say that was a single, like when I get sort of mad about, uh, the pandemic so that's one of the things that makes me the maddest uh, that you know I was there's a scientistic uh, tradition in the socialist left right I mean after all uh, we're supposed to be scientific socialists right um, uh, uh, so and there's this you know sort of admiration throughout the Marxist tradition starting you know Marx himself wanted you know, he started scientific socialism and um and there's this tradition of you know respecting of wanting to get at the truth and using you know rigorous scientific means to get at it but i think that's been very much sort of corrupted um and like the real it's just turned into a uh, uh, a sort of worship of institutional science right and the science of the bourgeoisie um so um and it was it's still like kind of amazing to me, like, you know, I was in like Marxist study groups, uh, we were reading, you know, all the classics. And, you know, as soon as the CDC and, you know, um, (laughs) the public health authorities and the political authorities started um, telling us that, you know, we all had to stay six feet apart, wear masks, couldn't go outside, you know, ruined our lives, we had to ruin our lives and or help them do it. They all went along with it. Right, and it's like what was the what was the point of reading you know Marx, Engels, uh, Lenin, uh, if and and then just there was this myopia on the uh, radical left here that you know I has, I still sort of wonder how that could have happened uh, to the extent that it did. So that's sort of so those were you know I've and then of course I was you know subject to the same propaganda as everybody else um, you know in the media and stuff. so those were I mean you asked me you know. I think about um my ideological progression so i i had to overcome those um sort of obstacles having you know from my trajectory and the way did you want me to talk about keep going yeah um and it helped i for me like again because i was sort of had brought up was brought up in these various ways to have a lot of respect for science what helped me was seeing other, you know, dissident scientists questioning the orthodox science. And that sort of got me thinking, well, maybe there's some, you know, serious reasons for thinking there's something wrong with, with, with this narrative. And so uh, plus also being the, the target of the vaccine mandates uh, helped a lot (laughs) Uh, when they're starting to put your job on the line for it. um, uh, That, that, that helps.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've mentioned this before, but uh, Lynn Margolis, who was the, you know, came symbiogenesis of a theory about how evolution might not have occurred in a slow way, but happened in a rapid way, uh, and was criticized for that theory. Um, she said that being a scientist is being a radical. Um, and I really agree with that. She also doesn't agree, didn't agree, believed the HIV theories of HIV, being connected to AIDS, uh, and, and was critical of that notion. So she she practiced what she preached in terms of being able to kind of look more deeply into what the institution of science is doing versus what her own pursuit was, was taking. Um, and uh, I, I think this probably actually is where we're probably going to move more into discussion area. But the thing that you raised, George, about about publishing, because that's my background too, and I remember everything I published. And I'm my first. My first thing I published was about um, a, a protein staphylococcal nuclease, where we had gotten the protein structure for it. And staph nuclease is able to cleave DNA molecules very specifically. And the thing that got me even, in, like I was trained as a chemist or got my degree in chemistry in, in college, um, but. I didn't really become fascinated with pursuing it until I learned about biochemistry and these things like proteins and DNA and RNA, and specifically it was proteins really that made me interested. The idea that there were these giant molecules that that could catalyze very specific chemistry without producing side products and things like that, because my mom was an organic chemist, um, an inorganic chemist actually, and I knew that every time they did a reaction. Yeah, You got some of the product you wanted, but you got a lot of what you didn't want. And that that these molecules, the, the notion that there's these giant molecules that can, you know, make 99.99% of the reaction go one way um, and not produce a bunch of side products was fascinating to me. And so my reason for being interested in this was that, was like, I was just interested in how this stuff worked. Um, it wasn't for to produce something for a pharmaceutical company. It wasn't to produce something for a drug or something like that. And in fact, my first graduate project was to look at the structure of a of a giant protein that was doing very specific um, chemistry on DNA. Make a single mutation in it, and then see how that affected its ability to do that. It's to really just learn, like, how does this thing work? And yet, in order to justify it, I had to basically kiss the ring of the pharmaceutical industry. And I really think there's a there's a way that 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 that, per, that is pernicious on so many levels. First. I had to justify my work, not on the basis of my own curiosity, but on the basis of something that helps some industry or, 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 you know, build something else. And, and it conditioned me to pay fealty, almost kiss, like I said, kiss the ring of of this industry that I have no interest in, you know? And I feel like from the jump, the minute I got into science, it got me away from what my reason for getting into science was, which was just fucking curiosity. Um, And and that, to me, like just you bring up that art, reminding me of my own experience in just publishing, um, was was meaningful. Yeah, a lot of people start off that way,
2: um, and I think there was a time when academic chemistry and academic science in general was, you know, more of a sort of academic, disinterested, you know, pursuit of knowledge. Uh, but it's become they've become incredibly intertwined with, uh, with capital. Um, by this point, I mean even the focus. Since you're a chemist, even the focus on synthesis. Even if you're just doing it out of curiosity, you know how does how do we make this compound? Perhaps enzymatically. Perhaps you know, uh, artif- you know, completely artificially. Even that, uh, some people would argue, reflects the needs of the chemical industry um, because. There was a time when our, when chemists were more interested in like classifying natural substances you know that they would find in you know plants and fungi and and whatnot um and studying how those uh, uh substances transform you know react and get transformed into each you know into other chem- uh, substances in the natural environment right uh but since you know about the I don't know, mid-20th century, maybe a bit earlier, the whole chemistry as a whole has become really focused on developing better methods for making chemicals. Um, and some would argue largely because of ca- the needs of capital.
4: For so, me, it just uh, it brings up this whole um when you George describe you know your experience in your fields and in, in how Much of a lane is constructed for each person participating. And and I I think, at least for me, that explains a bit of why something like the pandemic was able to happen. You know, like the narratives, why were they so successful? You know, because these lanes are so restricted. And makes me think of the quote by Michael Parenti and Rosa Luxemburg, they say something similar about a leash on your neck, right? Like, if you don't steer away from the peg, you know, you will never feel the tug of, of the leash on your neck you know in for for many of us this was the the pandemic was the first time with that tug was really strong and like threatening and like was present uh in you know um then it brings up right the, the the question about education and what is education about in in, in a capitalist society and you know does that mean freedom uh, right because uh it, there isn't many avenues, at least from what I see, uh, to explore truly what all, the thing that you're, you care about. You know, we don't live in that society because your material reality is dependent, you know, or you participating in the system. And, you know, I know there is plenty of people who with sort of expertise, doctors, you know, nurses, uh, who stay quiet, you know, during this time, or, or, or uh, were uh, opposing, in a silent manner you know they they didn't have the courage and, and you know and again to each their own you know you, you everyone has to come to their own um self-reflection as to why they didn't say anything or you know why they chose not to some you know i'm not gonna put it on everyone but i know for a fact that many people stay silent it's not that they didn't know they were silent participants in in in, in something so horrible right and and, and then you know I have to bring it back to Israel, right? Like, it's one of the most highly educated places in the world, you know? And, and yet there is this system of, you know, classic uh, oppression, right? Like, because I think that the oppression that we face during the pandemic maybe doesn't hit the the the, 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 the um, psychology of many people. They, they don't associate it with being similar, you know? It, 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 in, in consequence to what Palestinians are going through. Um, so I don't know if you
5: have any thoughts or comments on this.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing that's come up in terms of, I think all of us kind of are leftists where came, come from a left background. And I want to put this out there as a possible, I've been thinking about this for many years in terms of Marxism and science. Um, Marx, Marxists, Marx talked about the possibility of socialism being realizable was in part based on the idea that its, that it's theory of revolution was rooted in science, was rooted in materialism, um, and rooted in the production of, of an actual class of people who could make a revolution. That was the working class. And, and, and instead of just saying, well, I have this idea and that idea, like Fourier and Owen, Charles Owen, and other socialists who had ideas about how society would be, Marx said, "No. What is actually existing in the world that could make a revolution?" And that was that was supposedly a scientific approach, and the notion that the working class was the revolutionary agent of change was a theoretical consequence of his of his um, scientific kind of um, mm, pursuit or scientific uh, discovery kind of not discovery of of what was earth scientifically out of out of his uh, the way he looked at things. But there was a second part that always emerged for us. At least this was discussed in, among the socialists that I was organizing with. Which was, it wasn't just the, the production of the working class or the the existence of the working class that made revolution possible, but it was what what the efficiency and all that science had produced around it that had made production such an efficient process, so that oh workers would have time to actually democratically discuss. Workers wouldn't have be so belabored and beleaguered under. The, the onus of capitalism. So there was that second half that kind of said, if you take, take that away from us, if you take that technology that had made the, the possibility of, of, of efficient production away from us, well, then the, the possibility of revolution tanks. And personally, that was a notion that existed among socialists, and exists among socialists. And I think it made us kind of say, you can't take capitalist science away science away, science away from us, because if you do, the possibility of revolution goes away because I feel like there were two prongs to our possibility the existence of the working class, but also the existence of all this wonderful stuff that would make our life easier da, da, da. as if that's what it was attempting to do. So I think Marxists got trapped in not in this notion of no, revolution isn't just an act of the working class itself, but it's possible by virtue of all these things that capitalism has produced, particularly. The things that are a result of its science, and so I feel like we we half we half went and said revolution is not possible if science is not what it is, and I feel like it, it made us dependent and become um, as dedicated to pursuing the aims of working class revolution, but it became subordinated almost to saying, but it has to be with science still there with all its tools and and things it's produced because if we don't have that, then the whole project is over, which I think I. I I I question that now, but I feel like that framework is what what put me in a position, not just my science background, like George is talking about. And I do think like Vincent's homeschooling environment made him much more likely to question things. My background, like George's, made me much more likely to be a just a, a robot. Um, fortunately, I don't think I'm a robot and I got out of it. But I think there was also a Marxist training to becoming a robot and I would... And, and that, I would root it in that, in terms of science, capitalist science is making revolution possible, almost.
2: So, the, uh, I guess, maybe this can sort of get, we can sort of connect this back with the idea of um, science as, as religion, um, in that there's a, we're sort of, um So the idea of science as as religion involves what we talked about, the sort of opacity of science, right? And these, you know, translating everyday problems uh, into these sort of terms that nobody except the experts understand. But there's also another aspect, right, which is that science is apolitical, right? That's how it can be a replacement for religion. It's just as religions are supposed to sort of stand above you know uh uh social relations between people right um so science is uh in other words about politics so science is supposed to be uh apolitical right um and perhaps what's going on there right is that people uh aren't marxists have not sufficiently appreciated uh that um that that's a, that, that's um that that is a um, semblance, right? Um, that actually science in a class society is going to be politicized, right? And it just gives the appearance of being apolitical. And so uh, people who just focus on, you know, the use of science to create more productive machinery, right, are um, kind of being misled by certain uses of science, right, that don't, um, that um, seem apolitical, but really aren't, right? So. Um, uh obviously in that particular case right the the capitalists use the more efficient machinery right to exploit workers more right this is what uh, uh, this plays a key role in what marx called the production of relative surplus value um but i think we can go sort of a bit further right um so i, I highly recommend to uh, your uh, viewers uh, a book called biology as ideology by uh, richard Lewontin. um where I think that's a really, very good starting point for um a sort of thinking about science in Marxist terms, right? And so he um but it also has some limitations. So he basically says that um science has two functions, right? It has a manipulation function, which is basically making allowing us to manipulate and control the natural world, right? Um, and then it also has uh an explanatory function right where science allows us to explain the natural world not just do things with it right and in fact you can do a lot of things with science that don't are, are don't have a ready explanation right so you don't always need theory in other words to do things on uh, nature and Lewontin gives a number of examples of that um and so the uh explanatory function can be used for legitimation of uh, the existing society right according to Lewontin um uh, so for the example he uses is that of reductionism right explaining everything in terms of say genes right so um and so you know the 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 problems faced by by individuals are explained in terms of their genes right the problems faced by society you know poverty crime whatnot are explained in terms of the yeah uh, actions of individuals right so it's um Bourgeois science is individualistic in, in that it, its explanations take the individual as their starting point. So there's this contrast between manipulation and explanation, but uh, that he, which is a very valuable one, right? But I think manipulation is also, uh, he tends to understate the role of manipulation in supporting capitalism, right? And so, in other words, doing things to nature, right? um and so um we see things like uh, the pandemic is a spectacular example of this right we where we you have these things that were developed for very carefully controlled you know laboratory or clinical environments right uh or within those environments like masks uh pcr tests uh vaccines right and then suddenly our whole social world is transformed by those things right so the uh the and so then the science can become a means of uh of social control right uh so had you you know vaccine passes um you know uh forcing people to mask um, to uh not interact with each other in person right so this is this you could say that the pandemic was a spectacular example of sort of exporting the lab out into society right um and then and transforming our society by this sort of extension of the lab outside of its you know the normal boundaries of the of the lab, right, so I think that that like though Lewontin is provides a useful starting point, right, and in, um and i think uh and a lot of marxists would would start from ideology, right there's more going on with uh with science than just you know sort of making useful things and you know uh that and then this sort of ideology getting overlaid on it right the the useful things are actually weapons right marx marx in fact calls the machine you know a, a weapon of the capitalist against the worker and i think that goes but that that goes outside be, that goes way beyond just you know the factory right and the vaccine is you know a weapon for uh controlling people you know the masks are weapons for controlling people it's not just That there's this sort of bullshit explanation, you know, sort of overlaid on their use. They they are, you know, the science is a tool in the hands of the working of the ruling class.
4: I'm just expanding on what you just said, but or rephrasing. um, So yeah, science is not this purely objective thing that's just standing there, right? Someone controls it, and and someone shapes its intent, you know, to manipulate in whichever way and And I think that's the biggest failure that we have currently, you know, that I notice in environmentalist groups and, and, you know, people advocating for health and all this stuff, uh, uh, for safety, um, based on this purely objective thing that's not touched by, you know, or or slightly touched, you know, because I think a lot of people have failed to see that weaponization of the CDC, for example, right, and and how that the CDC is just a mirror image of the weapons manufacturing industry you know that 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 cycle right of people coming in and out uh from the cdc to pharmaceuticals and, and back in and around is, is no different than you know people coming from the state department to raytheon or you know boeing and all these companies
2: yeah but i don't think it's just a matter of regulatory capture though i think that's definitely like really important um because uh, people who focus on regulatory capture, um, including you know, like some Marxists who like focus on the role of monopoly capital and sort of distorting the, uh, you know, functions of the FDA and and whatnot, but it, it's very important too. Uh, but I don't think this is just about. about um, if you want to understand the role of science and sort of uh, the power of science in our society, it's not just you know that. Uh, Monopoly capital, or whatever you know, corporations are causing drugs to be produced badly, right? Because they want to uh, make short, do shortcuts, and and whatnot. It's also that science is being used um, to kind of just transform how people are interacting, right? So let's get. Let me give you another example beyond you know the things that everybody knows, like masks and vaccines, right? Uh, during the pandemic, right. Uh, class struggle became redefined in science in you know scientific or I should say you know pseudo scientific uh, terms right. So now all of a sudden, because the unions for at least the one you know for the most part went along with the COVID narrative right, COVID regime narrative, uh, suddenly their bargaining chip is arguing with employers over you know PPE. Some of them even were were you know howling for vaccine mandates right this happened uh at pitt i was actually in a union campaign before i left there to do my uh postdoc in philly uh and at at the like like almost the last day of the campaign we had just won the election without any democratic debate uh the campaign movement called for vaccine mandates right uh Luckily, I mean, I was on my way out, so didn't I wasn't affected by that, right? So, but, but the point is beyond you know the the opportunism of all that. the The point is that the class struggle there, the workplace, was redefined in in these sort of scientific terms, where now we're arguing about vaccines and you know uh, uh, safety protocols rather than about increasing wages about you know maybe a democratic a bit more democratic participation in the workplace um uh restrictions on firing and the like right so um it goes the use of that's not just an ideological use of science the the ideology is obviously playing a role you know in that right Um, and clearly the manipulation of the natural world there is going is uh is Going beyond just making use values, it's actually um, now people are appropriating that, you know, the unions, the the employers, and using those, that manipulative technology that's developed in the lab to um, redefine, sort of um, remold the class struggle.
3: Yeah, I think one of the things that's coming to mind for me with this discussion is you know, we're talking a lot about class struggle and class analysis and, you know, what we even mean by different classes. So I, I, I do think one of the strengths of of Marxism is this analysis of the petty bourgeoisie um, as this mediating class. And I, I think, you know, we've been talking about scientific labor and education and, and these themes, and I, I think one of the common threads there. Is this petty bourgeois class strata that um, plays this really significant role in sort of mediating between workers and the ruling class? And I I think specifically on the ideological front, it's just so pivotal on questions of science. So you know, one of the things I found very perplexing, um, you know, I I think there is an explanation for it. I'll I'll try to offer one, but you know, is just how certain so many of these people, like you mentioned, Kenny, just the highly educated uh, islands within American society or in Israel or wherever, um, you know, how certain they were in expert opinion or consensus or whatever you want to call it around a lot of these policies during the pandemic. Um, And, you know, including people who themselves are not actually in those fields, but there's this sort of deference to those people in those fields. And I I think some of this is this forging of social unity within the petty bourgeoisie, where you sort of get this almost psychological wage, if you will, of kind of being in that class of being kind of the chosen interpreters of experts, you know, who may not be the people you actually associate with on a daily basis in your workplace environment, but because of your educational background, uh, having gone to college and now increasingly a lot of people having done advanced degrees who are, who are um, taking a leading role in, in translating this kind of thing um, to people. Um, you know, th- there's, th- there's very much this, you um, You know, I I think it feels very good. You know, it's it's a very typical kind of petty bourgeois approach where, you know, everything kind of becomes about the self. And in sort of this affective affinity with other people in this no man's land um, between the major poles of class struggle. Um, And you know, I I was thinking about this a little before. I I don't know—is it all right if I just read something really quickly? Um, Because I I was, you know, thinking about the topic that you all had proposed for this, and was revisiting some of my notes. And there's one economic historian I had come across through reading uh, David Noble's work on technology. Um, And her name is Maxine Berg. And, you know, one of the interesting perspectives here, I think, is on how all of this played out at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which I see some major parallels um, with the current political moment if we're thinking about realignments within society. So, you know, some of this discussion is um, you know, early 19th century when the Luddite movement is prominent, um, and you know how different political tendencies in England were responding to that. So she talks about how, you know, within both the Tory Party and Conservatives, and within the working class movement, there were differing perspectives on the question of machinery and technology. So on the one hand, you have these Owenite utopian kind of socialists who you know almost venerate the machine but then you actually have workers themselves um who have a much more direct confrontation as as George was was mentioning and then um she also talks about how within this sort of uh Tory party um you know there there were more of the people who saw this inevitable element of technology where, you know, maybe we don't like it, but it's just going to happen. But then in the more rural areas, there was actually this resistance to it. Um, And so interestingly enough, she observes how there was this convergence of certain radical working class activity um, with certain elements within the Tory. So I'll just read one thing here that I pulled up. You know, she and this relates the reason I want to bring it up here is I think it relates to this segmentation of classes and what the role of of the middle class or petty bourgeoisie actually is um, within times of decisive political struggle. So just quoting here, she says middle class economic and political perspectives actively eulogize the progress of science and technology. But challenged on both sides by Tory and radical working class opinion, the middle class had to find an explanation for the economic and social impact of the machine. Expressions of wonder at the technical perfection of the machine were not adequate. It was thus that the middle class took to itself a, quote, scientific theory, political economy. This theory was expected to provide answers by employees, sorry, by employers, politicians, and middle class ideologists. It was no mere coincidence that industrialization and the emergence of political economy occurred at virtually the same time. Um, And this is basically in the very late uh, 18th century, early 19th century. Um, So, you know, I mean, I guess getting back to this question of, you know, even why are there elements within Marxism that have given this robotic training or however you had put it, Andy? Um, And I think, you know, the idea before Marx of something like social science or political economy as specifically a scientific enterprise, um, you know, and, and obviously Marx you know makes major critiques of of classical political economy while at the same time upholding certain um insights. but I think th- looking at it from more of a historical perspective, you know what is the role of science as sort of justifying something as inevitable, right? So in this case, you know the the Burgeoning middle class is is venerating technology, um, but you know not everybody's going to buy that. I mean, even in today's world, not everybody buys that. Not everybody is buying that. Um, you know, especially when you get out of these enclaves of the professional managerial class. Um, so there have to be other justifications, and I, I think what we saw a lot was you know, especially since science has also been diversified demographically a lot in recent decades, there was this idea of people going to working class communities that they have come from and sort of educating their people as it were and what the correct science was on these things. And I think, you know, this is sort of a concession that, yeah, People realize a lot, a lot of people realize their families coming from particular neighborhoods or particular backgrounds are not going to be all about science and technology and, you know, eulogizing whatever the next thing, new thing is. People are just skeptical. So, you know, you can't get people to have that intuitive response all the time. Um, but then the idea is you come in with, just the science, which can't be questioned. And I think, you know, this This particular kind of, you know, I guess coming back to, you know, maybe, maybe this relates back to the explanation uh, versus manipulation thing, and maybe on more of the explanation side, but this idea of sort of, we are going to explain to you what the reality is and you have to accept it, I think is still happening. I mean, it was just so interesting for me to read this, you know, history of early capitalism where, you know, there, there were different, uh, you know, ideologies mustered to, to sort of justify things that just weren't, um, weren't popular with a lot of segments of society. Huh.
5: No, I think that quote, is pretty amazing. Who did you say wrote it again? Oh, you're muted.
1: Sorry. Maxine Berg. Yeah. And I, I, I agree with you that it really resonates. You're saying that was 18. What is she speaking about? So what you... I,
3: she's talking about, I think like the 1790s okay, into okay, the early 19th century. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And I absolutely agree that that, that that process that's underway then, when there was opposition to what was happening, which has now been obscured, it's like that, the, 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 those folks have already been run over. The Luddites have already been defeated, if you will. The, the world that needed to be made, not on behalf of workers, but on behalf of the capitalists, was able to be made. But it, 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 did get, it, it didn't get made without some segment of the working class saying, we don't want to go there. That's not going to help us. Um, and in fact, we wanted to go in a different direction. And so you did need a a group of people. I I would say a a managerial class, a justifying class, an academic class that would because you could. Capitalist trained managers are never as good as the managers that come out of the working class. Right. And then, in fact, in in education, there's this this idea of like, oh, that principal used to be a teacher. They're going to be a better principal. And in fact, it's only better for the ruling class because those people know how to speak They, they know how to, they know how to talk to the worker in a way that they might get them to trust this process that is actually antithetical to to the, to the, to what the work they're actually doing. Because ultimately a manager is there to just be the, the angel, the angels for the God that is the capitalist, right? To send the message down of what, what needs to happen. And I think in the, in a similar way where George is talking about how unions bought into this this new moment where where it's electronic and digital and separated we had our largest union meetings under zoom right and our union leaders were saying oh my god look at this we have 500 people at this meeting but we're all on fucking zoom boxes and it's like even well already then i was like oh my god this is not good because the entire medium is controlled by our enemy like i mean there's nothing we can do that was free here except to be 500 boxes and it's true at our normal in person meetings we were we were good if we got 100 sometimes you know and people thought just because we had more that we we now had more unity but we were more separated we were more controlled the medium was more comp- i mean what a, a union meeting under zoom what there's no better way of talking about something that has absolutely no possibility of producing uh an outcome that could that could harm the capitalists than a union meeting in zoom because the the whole structure is is owned and, and, and controlled by our, by our, by the capitalist class. And in fact, what would happen is some people would start to put questions in the chat because they were not happy with what was going on. And then they had to move the zoom meetings so that you wouldn't have chat anymore. You wouldn't have that. And so literally the only people who would talk are the, are the people who are the squares that you saw, who, who were, who were given the ability to have the voices and the the 497 other people just have to shut the fuck up while they just listen to these people talk. And so It is true. I mean, you can literally see how class struggle was being channeled through their through their mechanisms, using their technology and and at the same time being promoted as something that could actually lead to greater struggle as opposed to destroying struggle, destroying working class struggle, uh, let alone the notion of we need our schools to go remote to keep us safe and things like that, which, again, are going to be the basis by which, you know, ultimately our jobs are eradicated. By the data collection that's going to produce AI that's going to replace teachers, and so the same process is underway, and the same the same class of justifiers for that, and people who will who are going to tell you lies and sweet lies to make you think that your sense that something dire is happening is not true. You know that you're actually oh no this this could work this can be better for us and stuff like that. It is that it's that petty bourgeoisie that is trained and asked to play that role.
2: Yeah, and let's not forget that scientists are basically petty bourgeois, right? I mean, they're not capitalists; they don't own the means of production. They're they are um, uh, sort of an, an intermediate layer, right, between the capitalists and um, the working class, right? Um, yeah, and I mean the um, it's interesting, right? So it sounds like Vincent, like you're sort of focusing on this role of the petty bourgeoisie and the labor aristocracy, right. In control, like using science to control the broader working class. Right. Uh, uh, and so it's interesting thinking about this because the, by the, it seems like science kind of gives a sort of a certain autonomy and power to the petty bourgeoisie and labor aristocracy vis-a-vis the working class, but also vis-a-vis capital. Right. So, like this thing about you you know workplace struggles being redefined in terms of uh uh safety protocols and and uh vaccine mandates and whatnot I mean obviously they're being dupes right but they are at the same time some this you know using this to uh wangle concessions out of out of the, their employers they're just you know sort of the wrong kinds of concessions right um so but it is but you know there's, I mean, it's basically petty bourgeois opportunism, right? So the labor aristocracy is going to say, you know, the, 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 the leaders of the unions, right, are going to say, oh, we can uh, 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 use uh, the COVID, you know, um, COVID narrative to extract concessions out of the boss. And it makes us look good because we're like fighting for the safety of our of our members. Right. Um, uh, so. The. Um, It it was used very opportunistic. The science gets used very opportunistically as a weapon in in class struggle. Right. Um, uh, So I guess that's what I mean by it's I agree that there's a huge ideological component, but it's not just that. Right. The science is actually getting used and, you know, materially forced into the workplace as a um, uh, through this sort of. uh, Perverted class struggle is what I would call it something like that
5: well, there's no escape, right
3: that I think that's the big thing. It's just like you said the movement of the laboratory into broader society, but you know I think this is again where education is the model right i I don't think it's a coincidence that you know, the, the penetration of the school into the home, for example, through Zoom classes, um, you know, also aligned with the penetration of all of these um, new biotechnologies into every facet of life um, as a prerequisite for engaging in, in society um, in many ways. Um, and, and I think you know, it, it always is justified in terms of inclusivity, for example. You know, the idea that we're going to be able to educate more people by putting everything online, right? Oh, we're going to save on transfer costs for poor families, or it's going to be greener because people don't have to travel, or whatever the justification may be. Um, you know, and, and I think fortunately, you know, I, I think on the education one, at least a lot of parents have rejected that incursion. I mean, there, there has been a major uptick in homeschooling across pretty wide swaths of the population, I think, in response to, um, you know, a lot of parents seeing what's actually going on in these classes or, you know, how much value there is. in just like you said, having 500 Zoom boxes on a screen and calling that education, just like people are calling the union movement some kind of political struggle um, when that's happening. Um, But yeah, that
5: that was just some of the things that that I was thinking about.
4: Something that came up for me was when you're talking about the petty bourgeois, um, I also think about Marxism, right? And and these ideas uh, and notions of class struggle and how they've also been pushed to, to, to. managed by that class, you know, because a lot of these conversations are happening in near or in academic settings, right? Uh, you know, and for me, it's really important, like us right here, right? Like we, I have a degree of college education. All of you obviously have, you know, degrees of education and, but this conversation, right? Like it's good to shape our individual ideas and but they have to move into the masses, right? Like we have to be in conversation with people who we interact with, right? Because, like, like we talked about, we are we understand that we're participating in a medium that we don't control. You know, like this can be taken down. You know, or, or we has been we have we taken down before. We've been censored. Uh, they can manipulate this to use this uh, against us at some point in our lives, right? Like in and so the real work, right, like comes from. Uh, for me, to, uh, uh, talking to my mom, to my partner, to my brother, you know, to my friends in, in, in ways that is understandable and also na- not patronizing, right? Like not me being, becoming that manager. Like it's it's, it's a reciprocal thing because like I mentioned before, um, you know, my mother was the first one who said, are you fucking serious? They, this, this came from a bat, you know, the whole COVID narrative. My mother, you know, she she has high school education and and she's an immigrant and she's seen as someone ignorant. Right. And or like in terms of in relation to people in San Francisco, for example, who have master's degrees in biotech and all this bullshit. And and uh, but my mother knew from the beginning, I do not believe this, you know, and and she's engaged in a struggle at work, you know, for better wages. and, And she's going through that battle. Uh, you know, and, and so I have these conversations, and in, 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 in I'm still learning to have a conversation with her. In, in but in deconstructing my own bullshit that I learned in, in UC Berkeley, you know, and to really be, you know, a comrade, you know, in, you know, versus someone who is also a manager of this knowledge that we're discussing, right? Because we have to understand, right, that to some degree we are all control opposition. And we have to be watchful for that stuff, right? In, in order to fight these mechanisms that we're still deconstructing, because for me, COVID was the really the like the beginning. <laughs> like I thought I was a Marxist before. I thought I was a socialist. I thought I understood. But here I am again, like learning again in how efficient these mechanisms are. That the people who rule us, you know, they're not stupid, you know, and and we have to understand that because I also like I listen to um, Garland Nixon, Scott Ritter, uh, uh, Jimmy Dore, uh, Kim Iverson and all these people, right? And they are part of the petty, you know, we just see and they still have this arrogance of calling the people who rule us stupid or that somehow they're mismanaging situations when we are losing the war, when we are so crushed when when we are so easily divided, you know, with the next issue, and, and so for me, it's important to to have that understanding that we have these conversations and they're important to be had, and you know, and we have to fight the people who are in their own islands um, and, and to try to build something, and but ultimately, it has to come back to the reality of our situation, right? And and not theoretical, you know. And so, what struggle do we? Carry out, you know, and it's hard. It's not easy. I don't have the answers. You know, we don't have the answers, but we think that having these conversations is of great importance, right? In order to be exposed to things we, we, things that we are blind, blind, blind to, right? Like in, in, so yeah, just some thoughts.
2: Yeah. I mean, I uh I think the lack of working class militancy is uh, has also been an important part of what allowed the pandemic and actually even the like the Ukraine war and uh the sort of more increasingly like histrionic responses of our you know political class to uh, uh things that crop up um has been a big part of that I mean because you, you there was a time at least in some parts of the West, where you had these, you know, big communist parties that you know were at least like critical of the society as a whole, right? At least, I mean, they eventually all got bought off. But anyway, like, there's no like counter movement that's pr- prominent that is truly working class and that is there, you know, to criticize um, uh, every feature of the of the ruling class system, right? So. Uh, so then you don't get, you know, so then when the, CD says, the CDC says, you know, the, you know, to X, everybody just sort of goes along and believes it. Um, I also, I mean, I, I one thing I worry about a lot is how to, how to connect people like us to people like your mother, right? Um, that's, I mean, that was the original aspiration of Marxism, right? That you would, you would fuse the socialist intellectuals with the working class that was actually in a position to bring about socialism. Uh that seems to have that link has been more or less completely severed um since the end of the Cold War. Well I think I'm gonna take where in some ways where Kenny
5: left off and George the question you you said because um let me do this first. Um I'm getting this book, out.
1: George will recognize it, right? Late Capitalism by, uh, what was it? Where does it say? Ernest Mandel. So why do I have this book? Um, which I haven't opened yet, but it's because when George reached out to me, he sent me a quote from one of the chapters in this book, chapter 14, which really resonated with him about Ernest Mandel's description of late capitalism as being simi- very similar to some of the things that are going on today. And I was like, wow. I could see those parallels, so it made me like. I feel like I need to start from the beginning of this book and see. That um, book was written from the early seventies, just for so. Familiar. Okay. Yeah, no, no. yeah, and yeah, right. He was talking about that, in, not the seventies, but and then Vincent, of course, you shared that quote from the woman you had mentioned about the period of the eight, just the end of the eighteenth century. Um, so for me, what's left? I thought of initially what's left as like almost like the way people think about, you know, get more subscribers, get more people that you're talking to. And, and, you know, you can have maybe more influence and maybe more connections and things like that. But, um, this whole process has changed my view on that. Um, for me, it literally is the conversation I'm having with George or with Vincent and certainly Kenny and Eduardo and Hema and Jessica and some of the, also some of the guests we've had. It's just, whatever connection I can make there that, that causes me to think. And then at that point, it's about my, my wife, Brandy, listens to these episodes. My mom listens to these episodes. My brother listens to these episodes. Uh, Brian listens to these episodes. I have a colleague at work who listens to these episodes. And from there, discussions start happening about, and they say what they agree with, and they say what they disagree with. And for me, that's, that's where all the action is. Like, it, It's not whether we get to 1,000 or 10,000 or 100,000 subscribers as much as i even my i still get caught up i can get caught in that it really is what what from these discussions moves somebody else to begin a, a conversation about what's going on in the world how do we enter into that how could we change it and and so i think we do have a connection to kenny's mom <laughs> through kenny <laughs> you know that and that and that and so i'm not going to i mean i know i I've met your mom before, Kenny, but I'm not going to be the person having that conversation. Kenny's having it, and that that conversation is a tighter one now than it was in the past, where you were going on to Berkeley and you were thinking that she didn't know some stuff, and she was thinking, oh, "Well, my son, he's so educated; I should listen to him." But sometimes he seems like he's full of shit. Da 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 da. You know. But now you are closer, even if you can disagree more coherently now, right? You can, you know, and and that's true for me and my mom and my brother. Like, our disagreements are actually more productive now. Um, and so that, to me, is is like a reminder of, it's like the Luddites remind remind us, like, what do we need? What do we need to survive? And this this vehicle really is just about me connecting with people to help me hear different ideas about how, the things that are going on so that I can bring them into my community. And I And I think that's where that will go. I don't know. Will that be enough? It doesn't seem like it, but it's the only thing I know because I, I don't, I believe this entire, like the thing you were saying, George, that literally everything we make under capitalism is a, is, is not a tool to help us, but a tool to enslave us Has never become more clear than the, than the, than the production of the tools that are being made now during the fourth industrial revolution. Like all those tools are tools of slavery and. And ultimately of, of trying to capture us and and break us up. So, I I go back and think that it is going to be uh, me and it's going to be touching. It's going to be physical contact. It's going to be people I'm in I'm in I'm in actual in, vic- in the same vicinity as. And what we do is going to matter. Um, not not just this mass diverse dispersed. I don't know, digital, whatever. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but I like lost, lost it a little bit, but that's what's coming to my mind as a result of this discussion right now.
5: Yeah, I guess I, um, uh,
2: I would, if I had to describe what you were saying, it sounds like you're describing sort of the subjective conditions, right? We can get, you can get into the subjective versus objective, dis, uh, distinction, right? And, uh, uh marxism um so it sounds like what you're describing are the subjective conditions for eventual class formation or you know formation of uh the revolutionary class consciousness right uh my and I, i i have no quarrel with that um my a lot of my questions these days uh have more to do with the objective conditions um and are you know in marx's time and even you know well into the 20th century there you know there was the manufacturing base right that was the that that was the real proletariat right that was that was providing the objective conditions for a socialist revolution and uh i guess i'm just what are my questions now are are the objective conditions there right and um where what exactly where exactly are we at in the you know uh development of the economy right are we at a point that's going to permit uh the formation of a revolutionary class or <clears throat> uh, because all the ideology in the world right all i mean in the, in there's all the proselytizing talking conversations and whatnot um are all very good things right all the podcasts uh aren't going to help if the objective conditions aren't there right and so um maybe this idea of a fourth i r or you know um or you know whatever theory that um can help us figure out you know um, uh, whether the conditions are ripe or not for the formation of revolutionary class consciousness okay
5: just worth another conversation, but um yeah, I uh
4: yeah, you know, I, I don't know. We've uh, in the past we've talked about like our optimism, right, for revolution and I think lipsen you and I are both less optimistic, right, because um of these uh of the conditions I would say uh you know in, in the systems that are coming into play right now. Um and how separated we are and you know, as much as these conversations, you know, are important, you know, and, you know, we've talked about on the show that we are fighting for humanity, right? Not, not like humans as a whole, but like our own humanity and to stay connected with another with other people. And I think, you know, we, you know, there shows that you mentioned the family, right? And we talked about how, like the people we're in close relationship with, um, you know our our reality, right we, we we I don't think we address that too much, right? like what, what's real, what's not and but we know that our family, that our people, that's real, you know and and what they're going through, you know, like their struggles in this world is what pushes me to you know push for the struggle, you know, that's my struggle right now right now i'm not I'm no longer an activist, I'm no longer a community organized in San Francisco, you know my struggle is my family in trying to stay afloat, you know, and, you know, that's what I knew. <laughs> Those are my conditions, uh, you know, in, in the struggle is real, you know, the sh- shit is getting harder. Uh, you know, we're getting squeezed more, and we know that there is more attacks coming, right? The, the COVID wave was an attack, and, and how do we survive that? You know, a lot of my f- people, my friends have been, Financially, economically decimated, they've been. We've been separated, you know. In, in, so that to me is my reality, you know. That um, we have to contend with, and and in that reality, it's so hard to even have these conversations. I have such a hard time reading them because I'm working like an animal, you know, trying to provide for my kid. And so it's hard. We have to keep going and find a way, you know. Like it's been hard for other people and. It's just I guess important to have perspective and and that perspective comes from me from the people I'm close with and that I
5: interact with. Uh, yeah Vincent, any thoughts? Just one thing that really stood out to me and what you just said, Kenny,
3: is um, you know how we think about fighting for humanity. Um, not necessarily just as this abstraction, um, but something very concrete. And this has been a major concern of mine recently, as far as the, um, you know, ethics, the ethics of, of these mandates and everything else that's being done is what is the actual scale that we're thinking about or Anyone is thinking about when they want to do good or make a change or something like that. And I, I do think there's something about the human being that has been lost um, in this very abstracted vision of humanity that's promoted by the public health establishment and others. And, you know, maybe this is an, a, another discussion that we can have in, in uh you know, the future at some point, because I'm very curious to hear all of your um, views on this, but, you know, especially those of us coming from a left background, how to attend to the individual human being um, in a way that's not individualistic, if you will. Um, And that's been a major uh, preoccupation of mine recently. And I think what you were talking about as far as the sphere of who you're working with, right, I can imagine a lot of, um, you know, leftists who have kind of, uh, you know, absorbed all the talking points, you know, describing that as some kind of retreat, or, you know, uh, postmodern defeat into, you know, some smaller uh, sphere or something like that. And I think, you know, it, it's it's hard to argue with people like that unless they really have experienced what it, you know, what you were talking about earlier with, um, you know, feeling the leash, if you will, um, in these larger scale organizations or more grandiose rhetoric around um, some form of abstracted humanity. Um, rather than the human beings that you're actually in contact with. So, you know, I, I think this is a major problem, both ethically and politically, of how to really grapple with these issues um, going forward. Um, and so I, I appreciate, uh, you know,
5: all of you offering reflections on those topics.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a great way to wrap up, Vincent, because. In reality, um, I mean, I don't think both you and George were like, well, where, what are we going to discuss and where are we going with this? And I think um, my goal is ultimately to get, is to have this discussion about science. And we did, I think it was largely framed also around Marxism and our a background that we share and that and questions we have about that. But what comes from this for me is like, you know, in the next, in the coming weeks or months, if there's something that you Vincent or George, you're like, hey, I want to bring this to your to what's left and talk about it. Um, that's what I'd hope would happen. Um we say at the end of our sign off, it's like if, if there's things you want to discuss, contact us and things like that. And we mean that. Like, um, and that's what George did. He contacted me and then we started a discussion. And and um and so that last thing you said, hey, I'd like to discuss this later, you should do that. You know, just let us know like, hey, this is my idea could we could we could we get on, you know in in December or January or whenever and and just have this discussion about this? this this really, for me, is what's best about this show for me is meeting people and talking to people and to have an ongoing relationship uh, about things that interest me, but also that interests you or George or Kenny, because some of those things are things I'm not thinking about that are like that I need to be thinking about. So I just would say, you know, both George and Vincent, thank you for taking this time, but also I'm really hoping you see this now as a space,
5: like a workshop that you can collaborate in, in the future as well. Sounds good. Thanks for uh, having us on.
1: That's Excellent.
5: Uh, thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Um, so let me do the sign off here. Um, all right. That does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast channel, Challenge the Mainstream Left. We post information about our topics and our guests. On the episode notes, wherever you found this episode or on our blog, whatsleftpodcast.com, you can find past episodes of this podcast channel there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you have heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, or turn on your notifications to any of our eight platforms, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, uh, BitChute, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube. Oh, we're not a Stitcher, so you can't reach Stitcher anymore. Stitcher doesn't exist. so. Stitcher is not one of them, um, or Telegram. Um, If you would like to give us feedback about something you heard or something, or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog, just like George did, so you can see what happens when you do that. Um, You can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. Um, So, George, Vincent, thank you very much. Um, Kenny, it's great to have you here again. And um, we'll see you all next week.
0: When you agreed to abjure one popular item of your doctrine in 33, I should have known. You were just withdrawing from a hopeless political brawl in order to further the true interests of science. Which are? <laughs> the study of the properties of motion, the mother of machines, which will make the earth so good to live on. We shall have no need of heaven. Hmm. In science, only one thing counts. Contribution to knowledge. And you have contributed more than any man in a hundred years. Have I? Contributed for whom? Welcome to my gutter, brother scientist and fellow traitor. I sold out. You're a buyer. The first sight of the book. The mouth waters. The curses are drowned. Allowed be our bargaining. Whitewashing. Death fearing community. Science is not concerned with our personal weakness. No? My dear Sarti, even in my present situation, I may still be able to give you a few pointers about science. In my spare time, and I've got plenty of that, I've gone over my case. The pursuit of science calls for particular courage. It deals in knowledge distilled from doubt. Our new art of darting delighted the people. They tore the telescope out of our hands and turned it on their tormentors. Princes, landowners, priests. <laughs> These men helped. Called the eye of science being turned on an age old poverty that could clearly be got rid of if only they were got rid of themselves. So we are deluged with threats and bribes, but can we cut ourselves off from the people and still remain scientists? Battle to measure the heavens is won by doubt. By credulity, the Roman housewife's battle for milk will be lost again and again. Science, Salati, is involved in both struggles. What are you scientists working for? The sole aim of science, to my mind, is to lighten the toil of a human existence. If you give way to coercion, your progress must be a progress away from humanity. The gulf between you and humanity might grow so wide That the response to your exaltation at some new achievement could be a universal howl of horror. As a scientist, I had a unique opportunity. In my day, astronomy emerged into the marketplace. At that particular time, if one man it put up a fight. It might have had vast repercussions. I've come to the conclusion, Sati, that I was never in real danger. For a time, I was as strong as the authorities I surrendered my knowledge to the powers that be to use it, not use it, abuse it, just as they saw fit.